First Peter 3, beginning in verse 18, join me as we read together. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Therefore, I'm sorry, verse 4, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatries. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in this flame flood of debauchery, And they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Amen. You may be seated. It's an interesting text that we get to work through together this morning, and I'm going to try to give you a a kind of a two different variant of how we're going to look at the text together. We have been doing a survey of 1 Peter together. This is our fifth Sunday, and we'll review where we've been and where we've come from in a moment. But one of the things is kind of a, a quick flyover that should have been flagging us as we read the text together is... Interesting phrases from this particular portion of God's word. Challenging phrases from this particular portion of God's word. You're going to notice that Jesus went and preached to spirits in prison. That ought to flag our minds to say, what in the world is that all about? The second thing you ought to notice is that baptism now saves you. Did you hear that phrase? That ought to flag us. And the third thing is the gospel is preached to those who are dead. Did you hear that? Verse number six of chapter four. And there's, there's weedy moments of this text. In fact, it's been a challenge to prepare for this morning. And by men that are much more versed in the word of God than I am, they would declare this is one of the most challenging texts in all the scriptures. Particularly chapter 3, verses 19 through 22. So I hope that we can kind of get caught in the weeds a little bit together this morning. And then at the end, I hope to be able to kind of fly over the text in more clarity, um, driving at what I think is the main big picture theme of what Peter is describing to us 
of course, um, inspired by the Spirit of God. So let's pray as we join together and search the scriptures this morning. Father, thank you that you've privileged us and enabled us to be here together, um, whether in person or via video. And we ask that as we seek to understand what your word says, to understand what it means so that we might apply it, that we might believe it, that we might trust it. Please help us, Lord. Please lead us. Please guide us. And I ask, Father, that we would be able to properly honor Christ, who is the the central theme of all of your word, and in particular, this passage. So thank you, Lord, for equipping us and, and, and enabling us to be here and to study and to grow together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. One of the elements of, of Bible teaching and, and Bible exposition and interaction corporately, as we're going to do this morning, is very much that. It's a, it's a corporate interaction. So if you would view me as being somehow superior to you, that's the wrong perspective. As I've shared before in last week's, um, I don't do this regularly. I do this occasionally, and it's in spite of, it's not a joy because of, of course, the reason why I'm here with Brian's health, but it's nonetheless grateful to be with you. Um, So we are very much fellow students endeavoring to understand and apply God's word. That's how all sermons are. And so I would just join you, encourage you to come and and reason with me as we seek to know and understand. We've been doing a survey of 1 Peter together. Let's see if my clicker will work. It's on the screen. That's odd. Bear with me for one moment. Ah, There we go. First Peter rapid review. Here's what we've discussed and what we've learned the preceding four weeks together. In the first part of this series, which was back in May, we kind of surveyed First Peter chapter one and part of chapter two, related to three different strains of teaching that Peter gave to us, gives to us that of a Christian's identity, answering the question, who are we? A Christian's purpose, entering, answering the question, why are we here? or some of the questions related to why are we here, and a Christian's future hope, where are we going? That was our first gathering together a few weeks ago. Second to that, we looked at 1 Peter chapter 2, and we reviewed the supreme authority that Jesus Christ has in each of our lives, and in fact, not just our lives as followers of Christ, but in fact, every life over the nations, over the world system, over everything, the supreme authority of Christ, and then the way that he delegates, he delegates realms of that supreme authority to human beings and human offices, delegated authority. We talked about our response of a disposition of submission, um, that we ought to set our sights higher, and in a very real sense, we're living in trust school, all of us, as we interact with our governing authorities, as, as our children interact with their parents, as we as employees interact with our employers, as wives interact with husbands, etc. Part three of our sermon series, we reviewed the high calling that we have in that we are to pattern our submission in the same way that Christ himself submitted to the Father. This being selfless, submissive, single-hearted devotion to God without retaliation, without threats, trusting the judge. This is trust school. Living this way, patterning after Christ is what Christianity is all about, and it's what normal 
Christianity is all about. And then four weeks ago, last time we were together, 1 Peter 4, that shouldn't say 4, that should say 3. 1 Peter 3, 8 says, Therefore, to sum up all things, all of us need to sing together in harmony, to be harmonious with one another. All of us need to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, show sympathy. All of us need to be brotherly towards one another, family, relationship. All of us need to show kindness from within or a kindness that is genuine. And all of us need to show and live in a disposition of humility because God is very much opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Then Peter goes on to say, should we exchange evil for evil? Of course not. Chapter 3, verse 9. Insult for insult. Blessing others through our words and deeds, of course. Called to bless so that we may bless be blessed. And remember in verse number 10, Peter then says, quoting here from um, Psalm number 34, for the one who desires life, one who wants to really live, who wants to see good days, must keep his tongue from evil. He must keep his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil. He must do good. He must seek peace, and he must pursue after it. For the eyes of the Lord are towards that kind of a person, towards the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And when I say the Lord's eyes are towards that kind of a person, we would understand readily that to be righteous is only possible as we're clothed in Jesus' righteousness. And we remembered when we discussed this last time together that when it says the Lord's face is against those who do evil, that is the very much what the cross was for Christ. The Father turned, turned from the Son as all of our sins, as all of our transgressions, as all of our wickedness was poured upon Christ who bore our sins in his body on the cross. What a glorious Christ we have. So this morning as we move forward, I've titled our sermon Unjust Suffering and the Glorious Christ. Unjust Suffering and the Glorious Christ. Christ. We're going to pick up a little previous to where we read, and we overlapped some of this last time we were together, but 1 Peter 3, verse 13 is where we're going to begin. 1 Peter 3, verses 13. After getting done with that quotation from Psalm 34, Peter says, Who is there to harm you if you're going to prove zealous for what is good? Who's going to harm you if you are zealous for doing what is good. But, Peter says, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. So, so Peter, coming out of the text from Psalm 34, just asks a almost a, a, a real yet somewhat rhetorical question. But if you are Proving, if we are striving to do what is good, he says, who's going to harm you? And then he says, even if they do harm you, even if you do suffer for doing what is right, suffer for righteousness' sake, you are in a blessed condition. And don't fear. Don't fear those who are persecuting you. Don't fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But instead, see that? Instead of that, set apart 
sanctify Christ as Lord, as ruler in your heart, and always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Don't, don't fear. You are called, we are called as followers of Christ to be zealous for good works, and if that leads to our suffering for being zealous, we are not to fear. That would be our natural inclination and our natural apprehension towards suffering, right? We would fear. Peter says, don't fear. Don't even be troubled. Instead, turn your effects, your focus, turn your minds to Christ. Set him apart as Lord of your heart, your control center, what drives your life. And always be ready in that process to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. And we're going to do this in a spirit of gentleness. We're to do this in a spirit of reverence. As, as 2 Timothy reminds us, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach patient when wrong, with gentleness. Same Greek word, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. So we're turning away from fear as we turn our eyes to Christ, setting him apart as Lord of our lives, being ready to make a defense, to speak to others, to evangelize, to encourage, to rebuke, to exhort, all of those elements of giving an account for the hope, the confident expectation, not a wishy-washy, flippant, I hope something happens, but a confident expectation in the Lord. And we're to do this with a spirit of gentleness and a spirit of reverence. Verse 16, Peter says, in this process, keep a good conscience. Keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. And I don't know this fully. I didn't study this point out fully. But I think the conscience thing here is having this firm and established and rooted conviction regarding our faith and who we are in Christ and what we're doing. Conscience. Remember, our conscience is our internal um, right and wrong indicator that God gives to every human being. And he desires for his people that their conscience, our conscience, would be enlightened and, in, and enhanced and taught through the word of God. It helps us understand and, 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 and alarms us towards things that are right and wrong. So we're, we're, we're giving an account for this hope with a good conscience in that we are, we are living in a way that pleases the Lord and that doesn't violate our own indicators of what is right and wrong. Because we might get slandered, he says. In these things that you're going to get slandered, those who are going to revile you, who are going to revile what you're doing, the good things that you're doing, they're going to be put to shame. And then Peter says in verse 17, it's better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. 
And here Peter comes back to a theme that he's opened up and is establishing in the book, that of of suffering for righteousness' sake. He's already spoken of it at some length, but he comes back to it again. It's better that you suffer, if God wills it so, for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. And now very much in keeping with earlier in chapter 2, where in the same way Christ gives us that great example of suffering that we talked about two times ago, Peter comes back to that theme and brings us again to Christ and his suffering and his redemption and the cross. It's verse 17, it's better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Do not suffer for sin, he's told us over and over again. Suffer for doing what is right. For or because Jesus Christ also died for sins. Suffering, he suffered for sins once for all. The just for the unjust. So that he, Christ, might bring us to God. How did he suffer? He was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the spirit. So here Peter comes back once again and brings us to Christ, the example of Christ, the glory of Christ, the glory of the cross. It's better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Here's how that looks. Christ, Jesus, he died for sins once for all. And let's just park there for a moment, right? The glory of the cross of Christ. Jesus Christ dying once for all. That's why on the cross he he screamed, it is finished! Right before he expired physically, because he suffered once for all. That's the only sacrifice, that's the only payment that's needed. The finality of the cross. Christ died for sins once for all. That was Jesus, the just one, dying for us humans, the unjust ones, for the singular purpose that he might bring us to God. That's that glory of the cross. That's that glory of the gospel. The sinless son of God suffering for the sinner to be able to reconcile us to God, to literally bring us to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, this phrase, being made alive in the spirit, is going to transition into our first challenging text. He was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the spirit. And let's just flip there to keep looking at it. Here's our first challenging text. Jesus made alive in the spirit in which Jesus also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Let's just stop right there. If you are familiar at all with a historical creed of the church called the Apostles' Creed, this is the text that the Apostles' Creed grabs from when it says Jesus Christ died on the cross, was buried, and descended into hell. Okay? You familiar with that creed? That's, that's, this is the text. This is the text where that creed would pull that language from. 
So some of the questions that good men wrestle with, who are much better learned and studied than I am, are things like, what in the world was Jesus doing in hell, if this is actually hell? What in the world was Jesus preaching? Why was he preaching? Was he preaching the gospel? Wait, 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 do humans have a second chance? Well, no, 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 he says he's preaching to the spirits. Now, is that human spirits, or is that like angelic spirits? So there's a lot of weeds, there's a lot of challenges within this text. And as best as I can gather, and as best as I can learn for the moment, I would give this to you as, as, as my um, understanding, not a comprehensive understanding, but an understanding nonetheless. It seems that in some capacity, when verse 18 ends and it says, let's go back there, Jesus was made alive in the spirit. I don't... I don't. I won't give this to you dogmatically. I don't know if, if Peter is saying that when he, when he bore upon himself our sins and received God's wrath, that not only he expired physically, but that something happened to his spirit receiving God's wrath. I don't know. Possibly. But Peter ends it by saying he was made alive in the spirit. Does that mean he was dead in the spirit? I, I don't quite know. So there's some challenge with that. But nonetheless, this is the segue, the segue into verse number 19. Because Peter's going to tell us about something that Jesus did while his earthly body was in the grave. Jesus was active for the three days his body was in the grave. That's what this text is going to tell us. And there's mystery around the text and some challenges with understanding the text. But one of the really beautiful, exciting things that we'll talk about a little later is that um, Jesus was very much active and, uh, and alive in his spirit, even though his physical body lay dead during this time. So what happened? Why does Peter say he was made alive in the spirit? I, I'm not 100% sure. You can think that through on your own. Nonetheless, verse 19 says, He was alive in his spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. He went and made proclamation proclaimed something. Now, before we look at this super close, I want to give you the other texts that are going to help us potentially think through this text. I'll give you everything else that we, the Word of God has based upon my knowledge related to this text or potentially related to this text. Here's the first. This is related to who was in prison. Who were these spirits that were in prison? Genesis 6, 1 through 8 says, came about when men began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the many mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. 
So here's one potential companion text. Potentially, the spirits who Jesus preached something to, proclaimed something to, who are in prison, are these angels. If you conclude that the sons of God in this text of Genesis are angels, which good men disagree on, but if you conclude that, we may conclude that these angelic spirits, angels, demons, came and infiltrated the human population in a very unique way in this time frame, pre-flood, and God judged them significantly for it. And he isolated them and sent them to some sort of an angelic prison. And it's interesting, Genesis 6 connects us to Noah, and we're going to see in verses 20, 21, 22, that for Peter connects us to Noah. So that could very well be the case. Demons coming and trying to infiltrate the human race for the express purpose of trying to screw up the seed of the woman. Remember that? Genesis 3. Serpent, you're going you're gonna to bite his heel, but he's the son of man is going to crush your head. We know the devil's plan has been to thwart Christ's redemption all along, and that could very well be a case. Here's another companion text, First, Second Peter 2, 4 through 5. Peter writes in his second epistle, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgments, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, our preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the godly, he goes on to say he's, he's going he's to care for you. He's going to judge the world. He's going to care for you. But anyway... Here it is again, God's judging angels who've sinned in a particular way, and he connects it to the ancient world and to Noah. There's a second companion text. The third is Jude 6 through 7, which says, Jude 6, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds and under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So there it is. That's all we have to work with. <laughs> so as best as I can tell... You can take this with a grain of salt as you, as, you, as you see fit. But as best as I can tell, I do believe Peter is describing a holding place, a prison, where wickeder than wicked normal demons were sent in times past. And it seems the text link us, almost all of them, back to the time of Noah. And it's quite, quite likely, quite possible that this was an attempt by Satan and his hosts to thwart the plan of God through the messianic line, through the seed of the woman, to prevent the Messiah from coming. So my understanding, based on what I've studied, is that it is this. It's, it's, it's a holding place, it's a prison that is still there and still active as we speak, where this group of demons who infiltrated the human population in the pre-flood days are being held in a particularly particular way, awaiting the final judgment of God. Here's a quote that will help us from John MacArthur's First Peter commentary. He says, related to verse 19, the verb rendered made proclamation, caruso, means that Christ preached or heralded his triumph. And I would agree with that. 
In the ancient world, heralds would come to town as representatives of the rulers to make public announcements or precede generals and kings in the processions, celebrating military triumphs, announcing victories won in battle. This verb is not saying that Jesus went to preach the gospel. Otherwise, Peter would likely have used a form of the verb euangelizo, which means to evangelize. Christ went to proclaim his victory to the enemy by announcing his triumph over sin, over death, over hell, demons, and Satan. Here's our text again. He's made alive in a spirit in which also he went, Jesus, and made proclamation to the spirits who are now in prison. Who are these spirits? They were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. During the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So Jesus, in the three days between his death and his resurrection, going to a real place to proclaim a real triumph, a real victory. We're going to speak on that again later. These, what seems to be angelic beings, were disobedient. And Peter takes us again to the particular days of Noah. During this time of God's patience, when God kept waiting, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And one very interesting side note, the Bible describes the days leading up to the flood as that of vehement, intense wickedness which was the very cause for the judgment of God, right? And what's interesting is that in another text of the New Testament, Noah is called a preacher of righteousness. And it seemed that Noah not only was building an ark, but he was also declaring through his actions and through his words God's coming judgment. And it's fascinating that Noah potentially preached through his actions and preached through his words for 120 years building an ark. And how many converts were there? None. Outside of his own family, praise the Lord. His own family, alone. So we know that those days of human history were incredibly dark. Noah, one family leader, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Received the grace of God. Um, incredibly dark. And, and this angelic, potentially, this angelic manifestation, infiltration of the human race may have explained some of that intense wickedness. I don't say that to mean that we as humans need help being wicked. But it seemed that those days, the New Testament goes back to those days as those of incredible darkness. Now Peter moves in verse 21. He says, corresponding to that, here's our second challenging phrase, baptism now saves you. Now corresponding to what? We just got done saying Noah... These demons, these spirits, most likely were disobedient when God's patient kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. There's our key phrase, safely through the water. Corresponding to that, corresponding, I think he's talking about the water. Corresponding to the water, baptism now saves you. So the first phrase that's going to help us get out of the weeds right away is his next phrase. He says, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. So, so Peter clarifies immediately. He says, I'm not talking about getting dunked 
physically. I'm not talking about physical immersion. But I'm talking about an appeal to God for a good conscience. I'm talking about appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. An appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we're not talking about physical water. We're not talking about physical baptism. We're talking about appealing to God for a good conscience through Jesus' resurrection. Interesting to note, the word translated baptism here, baptism, is not the main word that we would find in Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 4, Acts 5, believer's baptism. This is the word that we find all over the early part of the Gospels. John was baptizing in the Jordan. John was baptizing in the Jordan. Jesus and his disciples were baptized. While Jesus wasn't baptizing, I think the text says his disciples were baptizing. And it seems that, I think that's helpful because I think if we think maybe, it helps me a little bit. If we think repentance here might help us in in one sense. John's baptism was was a baptism of repentance. And um, again, we're not dealing with being dunked in a literal tank of water or getting your head sprinkled as some would interpret baptism as it being saving to us. We know that baptism does, does nothing for our souls. It is an act of obedience. It's a response to the gospel, not a cause of the gospel or not part of the gospel. But corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. And, and he says corresponding to Noah's flood, corresponding to that water, baptism saves you. And, and also, if we think about it in that context, Noah's water was the judgment of God, right? Noah's water was the judgment of God, not the rescue of God. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know what? Here's another way the New Testament uses the word baptism. This is Mark chapter 10. And I don't think this is saying the same thing that this text is saying, but it helps us understand, again, and confirm to us this isn't talking about water baptism. Jesus said to his disciples, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, We are able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. So there's another, that's the same Greek word, helpful comparison text from Mark chapter 10, verse 38 through 39. And in that context, Jesus is using the word baptism to refer to his, the coming cross, the coming persecution. And he's telling his disciples, you're going to suffer for my namesake also. Verse 22. I'm sorry, let me back up again. Jesus goes, he makes proclamations to the spirits who are in prison. These were the spirits who were disobedient in the days of Noah, when God was patient, when God extended grace, when God brought Noah and his family safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you not physical baptism, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I don't know, verse 21, loved ones, I don't, if it seems like I'm struggling to describe it to you, it's because I am. I don't know the full ins and outs of what that 
verse fully means. I know it's not water baptism. I know he's not preaching (laughs) baptismal regeneration. And he ends by saying, you're appealing to God for a good conscience that, that links us to living in righteousness, living correctly per God's perspective. And this is through Jesus' resurrection. So we know the whole text is moving us as a flyover. It's lifting Christ's glory to us. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, verse 22, this Jesus, it's a glorious text, is at the right hand of God. Having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. All right, so there's two of our three weedy spots, and now I want to just back up for one second and try to give you some of the glory of what I think this text is all about. Um, Challenging text, but the glory. If we back up, verse 18 speaks of Christ's death on our behalf, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. This whole text is a, is a glorious, glorious display of Christ's redemptive work on our behalf. The just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God. Jesus was physically killed, received God's wrath. He was made alive in the spirit during this segue between the cross when his body was laid in the tomb and before his body was resurrected, Jesus went and he proclaimed something. So here's what's the glorious part of this text. And again, it's challenging. We can get lost in the weeds, but here's the glorious part of this text. Jesus Christ went and proclaimed something between the cross and the resurrection. And this is what got me most excited about this text this week. Because we know from cover to cover of the word of God that the plans of God cannot be thwarted. Is that right? We know the plans of God cannot be thwarted. We also know that the devil tries his darndest, right? And this is one of the, this is not one of, this is the greatest attempt. If you track with teaching, with sermons through the attempts of the, of the demonic hosts to suppress and stop the redemptive work of Christ through the Old Testament up to the cross, it's all over the board. Who was the king that was spared his life by the nurse, right? I mean, that was the messianic line, the last one, right? Over and over and over again, the devil's attempts at thwarting the plan of God are stopped. If Genesis 6 is talking about, again, evil angels infiltrating the human population, however that went down, if that's the case, again, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an attempt, and God would not have it. He judged the world with water. He preserved a remnant, as he always does, knowing his family. But here we come to the cross, where Satan is at his pinnacle of belief that he has won the the victory, right? And here's Jesus Christ, who receives the wrath of God. So while the devil thinks he's having his way, Jesus is securing our salvation. See that? On the cross. He dies. They place his body in the tomb. And what is he doing? I don't know when he did this, but let's say the next day. What is he doing the next day? Here's the demonic host stuck in prison by Almighty God, potentially. Again, we're all basing this on what we've said. And they've potentially thought they've won the victory, right? And who shows up? Who shows up in the pits of the prison to the worst of the worst? 
Jesus Christ. And he proclaims a victory. Oh, this is good. A victory. I don't know if this, I don't mean this in any sense to meaning when we, in a, in a context like America, when we use the term trash talk, I think there's a lot of language problems with that, right? Naturally, in sports. But it occurred to me that Jesus, I don't know what his demeanor was, but he was heralding a triumph. Was that tri- I don't know, but I'll tell you what. He was declaring to these evil spirits exactly how it was. And I just think it's so exciting and so glorious. So here's our Christ. Here's our Christ. He's, he's suffering for us, the just for the unjust. He's purchasing our reconciliation, our cleansing, our freedom as followers of Christ, as his redeemed. His body's going to the grave. His spirit's going to the angelic prison, and he's declaring the victory. And then what is he doing? His body is raising from the dead. He's making appearances to his 12 and to the other disciples of that time. And then where does he go? Verse number 22, right? This Jesus is at, where is he? Where is he, loved ones? He's at the right hand of God. He has gone into heaven after, here it is, the devil thought he won. No. Angels and authorities and powers had been what? Subjected to him. It's glorious. Wow. So we can get lost in the weeds of verse 19, 20, 21, but I'll tell you what, the glorious flyover is that this is the redemptive plan of God, where God the Father, in all of his sovereign oversight, just says to the devil, no way. And Jesus goes there and makes the point, no way. Christ has won the victory over, what does it say? The angels, authorities, and powers subjected to him. It's glorious. Chapter 4, verse 1. Because of that, Peter says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, clothe yourselves, gird up the loins, put on your armor with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So Peter describes the glorious Christ to us. The glorious Christ. Within the context of unjust suffering. Hence the sermon title. Unjust suffering, the glorious Christ. Verse 17, verse 18. Don't suffer for doing sin. Suffer for righteousness sake. Jesus suffered for righteousness sake. And here's what his suffering brought about. And Peter goes right back to that theme. Therefore, because of that, Jesus has suffered in the flesh. Arm yourselves. Put on this armor. Put on this armor. This same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Because Jesus has suffered in the flesh, you believers arm yourselves with that very same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. I didn't have time or take time to push that phrase real far. What does it mean, suffering in the flesh, ceasing from sin? Because verse 3 or verse 2 says, So as, so that we would no longer live the rest of our time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. I don't quite fully know what Peter's driving at here. It's, an, it's a very interesting phrase. I know that our, the suffering that we as believers experience in our flesh 
And this would go beyond suffering for the sake of righteousness' sake, I think, but it would for sure be that. The suffering we receive for doing what is right, for walking in God's ways, has a purifying effect on our walk. I think the Bible would affirm that to us. It's, it's, a, it's a massive tool in the toolbox of Almighty God to train his children. God uses suffering to train his kids. Right, our hearts grieve. We grieve, we pray, we seek God's face for Brian. We know, biblically, that this is a tool in the hands of Creator God for the ultimate good of your church family and these people. And that's, I don't say that with a heart of stone. I say that biblically. God's plans are unfolding in your church family's lives. You don't understand that, I don't understand that. God knows. That's where our trust resides. Christ has suffered in the flesh. We're to arm ourselves. Put on this armor with the same purpose because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So I think Peter's driving at the element that this tool in God's toolbox has on the believer's life, purifying us from sin. Ultimately, we know that the ultimate, the ultimate thrust that the, the devil and the world system has on us is called physical death, right? That's the ultimate. They can kill us. Tell you what, when are we ceasing from sin, loved ones? The moment our physical life here expires. So that's part of what Peter may be driving at as well. Verse 2, arm ourselves patterning us after Christ. We know that suffering is a tool in the hand of Almighty God to help purify us and bring him glory ultimately so that we would live the rest of our time. Here's a great charge to us as believers. No longer, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. There it is, all over the New Testament. Put those things aside. Lay, though, that's who you used to be. This is who you are. goes right back to our themes of identity from week number one. Verse three, Peter expands on this. The time already passed is totally sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles. Interestingly enough, the word translated Gentiles here is the same word that Jesus used when he said, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Same word to all the Gentiles. Which in this context is not talking primarily about ethnicity. It's talking about idolatry and waywardness from God's ways. Being outside of God's covenant, outside of God's people. Time past is sufficient, totally sufficient for you, follower of Christ, to have lived like a Gentile. How does a Gentile live? They pursue a course, an agenda of sensuality, an agenda of lusts, an agenda of drunkenness, an agenda of carousing, an agenda of drinking parties, an agenda of an abominable idolatries. Peter says, this is, this is past for you, loved ones. And in fact, the old crowd, verse 4, they're going to be surprised. They're going to be surprised that you no longer run with them 
into the same excesses of dissipation. And they're going to malign you. They're going to malign you. Or slander or blaspheme you. This is the same word that Luke writes about when the thief, the unrepentant thief was on the cross and he was hurling abuse at Christ. He was, he was maligning, maligning Jesus. Same word. And all this, they're surprised that you don't run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they hurl abuse at you. But don't worry, Peter says, they, the maligners, the non-believers will give account to him, capital H, who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Let's back up. The time's passed. Sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued this course of sensuality, this course of lusts, this course of drunkenness, this course of carousing, drinking parties, abominable adulteries. He's just giving us a snapshot of of who a non-believer is. Oh, you might say we not every non-believer is that way. Not all those things describe every non-believer, but as a flyover. And in this way, they, the non-believers, are surprised. You don't run with them into those excesses. And they blaspheme you. They malign you. They hurl abuse at you. But don't worry, God will judge them. They will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And here we come to our last text of the morning, which is our third problem text. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. That though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. The Gentiles are going to give account to God who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this the gospel has for this purpose been preached, even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Now we'll flip forward. We know Hebrews 9, 27 through 28 says, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes a second chance, no, purgatory, no, comes judgment, So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. We're talking about the difference between facing God's judgment as a non-believer and saving God's ultimate rescue as a believer. So we know that he's not talking. The scriptures are going to give us clarity that he's not talking about a second chance of salvation Preaching to those who are dead is not, he's not talking about a second chance of salvation. For, so what is he talking about? And as best as I could gather and study and leaning on men who are wiser than I, it seems that Peter is speaking of those who the alien dispersed ones who received this letter would have been familiar with, whom they would have known, that of fellow followers of Christ. 
The whole thrust of the letter is talking about unjust suffering. Peter's writing to people who are dispersed and aliens for a reason. They're receiving legitimate persecution for their faith, legitimate persecution for the, for the sake of Christ. And quite likely, some of them had perished physically because of it. And Peter says the gospel has been, for this purpose, preached to those who are now dead. Though they were judged in the flesh as men, the world system said, kill them! They may live in the spirit according to the will of God. The non-believers, the Gentiles, verses 4 and 5, are going to give an account to him who's ready to judge them. And I think Peter's talking about believers here. Those who had heard the gospel, responded to the gospel, and then been martyred or physically just expired, died. Preached to those who are now dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, killed in the flesh as men, suffered in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. And that brings us to our conclusion. One of the commentators I worked from said this related to Jesus being central to the end of chapter 3. He said, everything else in this paragraph is incidental to what Peter had to say about Jesus Christ. Incidental. It's glorious. It's glorious. Here's our conclusion. It's a great Warren Wearsby quote. He says, believers, we don't fight for victory, but from victory. Christ has won the victory death, resurrection, ascension. That is a glorious flyover of this portion of the word of God. We do not, as believers, fight for victory, but from victory. And that's why, that's why the glory of Christ declaring his triumph to spirits in prison is so fantastic. He won the victory. We work as his followers, not for victory, but from that victory. Another MacArthur quote, Peter's point is riveting and dramatic. Believers will suffer for the sake of righteousness, for doing what is right. All suffering believers can be encouraged that such is not a disaster, but rather the path to spiritual victory. The unequaled example of such triumph is the Lord himself who suffered unjustly and through that suffering conquered sin and the demons of hell. God indeed uses unjust persecution mightily for his holy purposes. So this text describes for us, as far as I understand it, the punishment for wicked angels who try to circumvent the redemptive plan of God and the proclamation visit that Jesus made to let them know their final attempts had failed. The cross claimed Christ's victory, not his defeat. And we would say with the hymn writer, Hallelujah, what a Savior. This part of First Peter is lifting high Christ Jesus. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords who foiled every last attempt of Satan to halt 
the redemptive plan. Christ the serpent crusher, love it. The devil's worst is the believer's best. Think about this. Through the example of Christ, Christ's death procured, secured the greatest of all great things for us as human beings. The devil's worst, the best he could do, transitioning into the believer's best, and in a similarly, although way lesser degree, the very, very greatest that the enemy of the believer can do is kill us physically. That's the best he can do. It's all he has, ultimately. The ultimate thing you can do, and that is our worst. No, no, no. Look at what the New Testament writers, Paul says, to be absent from the body right now is to be present with the Lord. Paul said, I would rather depart and be with Christ because that is far better Far better than what? Far better than being here. The greatest tool in the arsenal of the enemy of our souls, if used, procures our greatest good in some senses. You see that? Paul's like, it's way better, loved ones. We have a glorious Christ. Glorious Christ. And my concluding question is, do you know him? Because everything glorious about this text, everything glorious hangs on whether or not you know him. If you don't know Christ, if you are not clothed in the righteousness of Christ, having had his shed blood covering your sins as you by faith cry to him for rescue, this text isn't glorious. This text is not glorious. Because the Bible tells us that human beings who refuse to submit their minds and their hearts to Christ, who refuse to submit and receive the blood of Christ to cancel out their sins, they will give an account to him. It says every knee will bow, every tongue will ultimately confess, but that point is too late. Because that's post-death. So the call of the gospel for us always today is do you know him? Not do you know about him? Not can you quote Bible verses? Not did you pray a prayer? Did you walk an aisle? That's not the question. The question is do you know him? And secondly to that, more important than that, is does he know you? We come by faith. We trust in the shed blood of Christ who alone can rescue us from our sins. If you don't know Christ this morning, whether you're young or whether you're old, you respond to his call by saying yes to his redemption. He died for you. You receive that substitution, that payment, that blood covering of your sins. And only he can save you from your sins. Believe it, loved ones, believe it. That's right. Let's pray together. Father, we've been able to wade through a text together and in some senses wade through it helter-skelter, but nonetheless, as we're able to look back and view the flyover glorious highlights of this portion of your word of God, of your word, 
we know that you are lifting high your son Christ. You are lifting high the name of Jesus Christ. He is worthy of all of our honor. He is worthy of all of our praise. Father, please open our eyes for any among us, Lord, who do not yet know Christ. May they believe the gospel, the good news that Christ alone can rescue from sin. May they receive Christ this morning. Father, please allow each of us as your people to grab hold of your truth. Suffering, suffering for our faith is not something to be feared. Instead, verse 15, we must turn our eyes to Christ. Help us to do that, Father. We're living in times that are scary. Help us to turn our eyes to Christ, to focus on the hope that we have in Christ. And that we would be able to train our minds biblically so that we would see suffering for what it is, a tool in your toolbox. So that we might submit to your ways with joyful hearts, that we might be the people, that we might in a very real way, Father, live with a, with a reckless abandon towards our own skin, Father. That we might be a people who doesn't care first and foremost about preserving our physicalness, but a people who cares about your glory and advancing your causes in our families and in our church and in our communities. So please help us, Father. Teach us and lead us. May we follow. Thank you for letting us be together, Lord. Now as we lift our voices and as we sing your word and respond in song, may you help us do that with full hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.